Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Leap Takers podcast, the podcast for the curious where I'm interviewing daring entrepreneurs, investors and shapers in fascinating areas such as crypto, consumer technology, traveling and other emerging technologies. In today's episode, we will dive into the world of venture capital and startup investing and learn about how to deal with surprises in a startup context, how it's all about people in the end and much more. My guest for this episode is David Liu. He is an up-and-coming venture capitalist based in Sydney and Singapore, but he's constantly traveling the world on the hunt for great investments. He's a partner at 256 Ventures, a global cryptocurrency investment fund that invests in and manages a portfolio of diversified digital assets. He also founded Australia's first student VC called Textbook Ventures, which we will also dive into in this episode. He also writes regularly academic papers around the topics of entrepreneurial ecosystems, startup roadmaps, and early-stage fundraising. Finally, the Forbes magazine wrote an article about David with the title Why Being a Young Investment Partner Isn't Always a Good Thing. Finally, I want to open up this episode like I started last week with a quote that I think fits very well to today's guest. So here it goes. Great opportunities never have great opportunity in their subject line. This was a quote from Scott Belsky, and I hope you see how it relates to today's episode. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. And um, yeah, thank you very much for taking the time. My pleasure. Yeah. So it has been a while since we talked, since you were in Zurich. And yeah, I thought it would be great to have you on this podcast, um, because I think you have a very interesting background, how you built up your um, your kind of your business and how you got into venture capital as such. So there are many different ways we could go, but I think a great place to start would be um, how you got started with VC and maybe most of all, how you got interested in becoming a, a venture capitalist and starting your own fund. Was there any you know, specific experience or specific um, learning that you had, which made you make this decision? Certainly. So I would summarized that how I got into VC was totally accidental. Uh, I didn't really know about VC when I first started textbook ventures. It was became more from a place where I was just trying to solve a problem. So I guess the genesis story here is one of my friends had raised money from a small angel investor in Australia. He gave up 30% of his company for $30,000 Australian in investment. Uh, and then later on, about a year and a half later, had to buy the investor out for a 2x liquidation preference. So what that means is that he had to pay $60,000 to buy out the, that investor, which you know, for a student uh, entrepreneur was, was quite steep a price to pay. And fundamentally, you realize that that's the reason why entrepreneurship really struggles in a country like Australia, where you have investors that have looked at cap tables and term sheets and done them hundreds of times. And the student entrepreneur, the young entrepreneur really, uh, doing for the first time. And it came from a desire to try and solve that problem, to educate uh, young entrepreneurs that you know, investment like might, might look really lucrative. $30,000 might look like a lot of money, but in reality, it's not that much. So we started off trying to essentially build up this community where students could learn the ins and outs of what to expect when going into an investment meeting. So that's where it started. Mm -hmm. And as we worked with more and more companies, we became quite familiar with student companies and what they were essentially, what they needed and essentially created a model 
for helping them raise from external investors. And I think for them, really taking their company from what you might label as a student company to just a normal company as everyone else would do in the real world. Okay. Was there, you know, before you, before you started this, kind of what was the self-talk? Like, I, I think it, it must be a bold decision to, to try to start a, a student VC fund that young, especially I think it's not a proven model, right? People might not trust you initially. So, or how did you convince yourself to start this? Um, I think it's a, this is always an interesting question. I think it's a bit of both. It's a bit of ignorance, to be perfectly honest. I think, you know, if we knew what was required of setting up a fund, let alone, um, you know, students doing it, uh, I would probably think twice about it. You know, <laughs> looking back now, uh, for four and a half years sort of forward, back then it was a combination of, I think, just wanting to solve a problem and seeing why entrepreneurship was lacking in Australia but also sort of observing why it was taking off in places such as the US. And a lot of these uh, support mechanisms and infrastructures existed in the overseas ecosystems that was blatantly, you know, missing in Australia. Um, and it came from just a, I think, a very naive and passionate desire to try and solve that. Mm-hmm. That's where it came from. So when it came to actually executing, we didn't really know what we were doing, to be perfectly honest. We had no idea that, uh, license are required in running a fund. You can't just pull together a bunch of money and expect to start writing checks. Uh, there are actually rules to this. And, you know, as we sort of went along, we realized that actually maybe this undertaking is a little bit more difficult than we thought. But I think what keeps you going at the end of the day is having a student founder that comes to you, one that says, hey, you know, because of you guys, we were able to raise $50,000, $100,000 seed investment or even pre-seed investment from this investor or an accelerator within Sydney or Great Australia, or even going international to uh, overseas accelerators. That was really rewarding to see. And the fact that we were actually making a difference to these people's companies and, and I think ultimately their lives and careers was really rewarding. And that's sort of what drove us to go ahead with it, despite the sort of adversity and the challenges that you know, one, one might face when trying to set up a VC at you know, age 21. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes perfectly sense. And I can also really see the, the value add you would bring. And maybe now looking back, were there any resources that you looked into before you, before you started the fund for other people that might have a similar idea? It's always a chicken and egg problem when it comes to resources and uh, information. I think a common phrase that I go by is, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And when that level of information is close to zero, I sort of where we started, we didn't know anything from, you know, the company structure of a fund, uh, even to, you know, understanding term sheets or, or cap tables quite seriously. Um, we had studied them, of course, in, in books. I think um, Venture Deals by Brad Feld is quite, quite a useful resource, which is commonly referred to as like a VC kind of gospel. It really gives you a crash course on what to expect. Um, for me, a good friend of mine, Harry Stebbings in the UK, that's 20 minute VC podcast, which is also super digestible content. Interviews a lot of great uh, entrepreneurs and VCs alike and just various blogs. So Fred Wilson from USV, uh, Elad Gill's blog is also quite interesting. Uh, Drinking the fire hose. There's uh, quite a few resources on the internet that really allow you to get to glean some really good insights into industry. So 
when we first started, it was almost trying to absorb as much information as you could in a short period of time. And the, the, the problem with that is you sort of take in everything and, you know, taking everything in might not be the best use of some resources because you're not differentiating between what might be useful or what, not, what might not be. So, for example, you know, if we're looking at, you know, if I'm reading an article and trying to scale uh, a, SaaS, a software as a SaaS business from 10 mil revenue to 100 mil, that might not be as relevant to a student company as it might be to a series C company. So there is a risk of digesting sort of everything in a way, uh, but sort of figuring out, okay, how can I make the most of my time mm-hmm. and where can I sort of tailor my learning to focus on areas which you know I need to learn more about. Mm-hmm. So for us, it was quite often almost pre-revenue products. It was looking at business models for different uh, types of companies. So we look at SaaS, we look at hardware companies uh, to even you know, different verticals. So a lot of the early stage companies that we were working with and were part of our portfolio went from your traditional you know, tech businesses, such as, you know, they're trying to do some, some sort of software service to what you would call, you know, deep tech, which I will mention with it, uh, italics, deep tech projects such as space, AI, and even VR, for example. Things that, you know, my background as, as a lawyer didn't really correspond or understand that all that well. It was a new industry, it was new technology, and the use cases of that technology, the, the types of utility, functionality, and even the target audiences were all things that we didn't really know. So learning about all that, I think, was quite crucial to getting a deep dive on how these industries work because we always had to stay one step ahead of the founders to really give them any sort of value add. So for a, for a space company, understanding, well, who are the end customers? Who's paying for these satellite launches? And what, what sort of good do these satellite launches uh, bring to people? Those are things that we had to really learn and understand, um, just understanding how the technology fundamentally works. Because without understanding that, you really shouldn't be investing in or working with companies you don't get. So that was something that was core to our operation and mandate. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I think also you mentioned some really good resources there that I, that I can only agree with. I think also um, you mentioned Brad Feld. He also has a great blog, Feld Thoughts, I think, where I heard also there's quite a good collection of resources. Yeah. And then also fully agree with you should understand what you invest in and also that you can bring value add to, to the companies, to the startups. Yeah. So Maybe we already jumped a bit ahead. I think I also wanted to get into a little bit your um, journey a little bit. Like uh, you mentioned before, textbook ventures. And I think if you could just give me, the audience, a quick run through like your story from, from where you started out at to where you're at right now with, with um, 256 Ventures. Certainly. So textbook ventures was the student VC fund I set when I was in school. The mandate was super simple. It was to help student founders build great companies. That's what we were trying to do. And we were trying to support the, the, the really bold founders that would otherwise not be noticed. I think our secret sauce and our unique selling point was that for external investors trying to understand the university landscape, there were a lot of friction points. If you're 40, you know, you've been out of school for about 15 years, you might not know exactly what goes on in engineering faculty or medical faculty or whatever faculty. And that was our selling point. So 
one of the founders that I met uh, was a founder of this remittance service that used cryptocurrencies uh, as the back end. And this company was called Dime. It was a solo founder. He was you know, 18 years old. And I think he really intrigued me and really got me into cryptocurrencies. Um, so initially, he was one of the companies that we were looking to, to partner with, with Textbook Ventures. Worked with him extensively as part of the due diligence process. And as we were doing that, I realized that he was really onto something amazing. So to give you a super high level of how Dime worked, uh, it targeted it, the, the, core, the core target market was for Chinese Australian students. So Chinese international students studying within Australia who would often send money uh, home to their families and also receive money from their loved ones overseas. Now doing that through a traditional banking system is, is quite expensive. So for us, he was fortunate enough to set up a bank account within China. He had spent a few years there uh, and also had an account in Australia because he was an Australian local, essentially using Bitcoin as the back end to remit money between China and Australia. Mm, and okay. as we were doing that, started making some huge um, returns, not from the transaction fees we were charging, but from the spreads between the market. The markets then between China and Australia were about, 10% difference. So there was a 10% premium in the prices in Australia because the liquidity for Bitcoin was far less prevalent than the liquidity of that in China. And it became very profitable to simply buy and sell. Uh, how we stumbled across that was highly accidental, I would argue. But <laughs> I guess what we did after that was a simple pivot. It was as easy as figuring out, hey, I think this business model makes more sense. There's clearly a lot of inefficiencies in the market uh, and we should really go after it. So he, you know, as a as an eighteen year old, decided to set up this this fund that focused on cross border cryptocurrency arbitrage, and I later became the second investor in that fund, uh, which is now Virgil Capital, managing over a hundred million dollars uh, in assets. So that was sort of my foray into crypto from traditional venture. I still spent some time in traditional venture, but the the crypto currency move was. Uh, quite radical for me because it was the first time I had to dive deep into one industry more than every other. I think as a VC, you're for, mo for the most part generalist across a lot of different industries. And uh, it was the first time that I took a deep dive into an industry that uh, I was curious about the technology, but also didn't know too much about. Uh, at the point I came into contact with cryptocurrencies, it was more about the use cases and that really intrigued me the fact that you had a currency that could within seconds move across borders. And that prompted the journey into, into this industry initially as a hedge fund manager, and then slowly moving back into to my VC roots and setting up 256 as almost as you would sort of refer to it as an affiliate of Virgil Capital. And that's sort of my genesis story of 256. Very interesting. Yeah, it, it sounds like some really exciting times, um, especially when you, when you did that uh, Bitcoin arbitrage business. Were there any like specific, you know, memorable moments or stories where you think that looking back, you would have done something different if you had the knowledge you have right now? Definitely. I think the main one is always think in a default scenario. And uh, what I mean by that is, every time you come across a decision or you come across a set of decisions, um, there's always the default option. And the default option is if everything fails, uh, what do you do? And 
I think earlier on when I was doing uh, both or, or all the fun products that I've worked across, we waited for a lot of approvals, a lot of people to jump on board before we took the next step. Now, I think it's, it seems logical for uh, particularly young entrepreneurs or young investors to, to want to get everything in place nicely before you launch something or before you really jump into the real world. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, something that you don't really get to learn at school. You know, in school, it's very much a fixed environment with a set of assumptions that are given to you. And, you know, if you answer things correctly, you get a tick. If you answer things wrong, it's a cross. In the real world, I would argue, it's quite different. Quite often, more often than not, things won't go the way you expect them to go. It's not as simple. The The variables are far greater than the variables you might find in, in a classroom setting. So for us, we waited, for example, for textbook mentors, we waited for the university to get to give us their approval before we went forward with working with certain startups. Whereas realistically, we could have just gone to industry who we already had supporting us and just done that exercise completely without the university and without getting bogged down in the bureaucratics of a large organization. And those are things where I would implore most founders or all founders to look into is that there's always a, a scenario which where everything fails and that should be what you think and work towards and that's where you should be setting expectations. Everything else is quite often a bonus. Mm-hmm. And if you start thinking in those scenarios, you're less likely to overestimate what you're capable of doing and also less likely to get disappointed when outcomes don't go your way. So that's a key lesson that I would really focus on because it's really cost me a lot of time uh, for all the ventures that I've worked on. Yeah, very, very valuable advice. I fully agree there. You already mentioned before when we started that there were quite a lot of things that you were not familiar with or that you kind of overlooked as well when when you set up textbook ventures, etc. And I think uh, I read in one article or you, you mentioned before like one of them was the Australia financial service licenses. And just interested, how did that play out? You know, it, it must be like a kind of a, a shocking moment once you realize, oh shit, we, we, we forgot this crucial part. And um, how do you also react to some things that don't go that well uh, when, when you grow like a fund or, or any business? That certainly surprised us a lot. And it just showed us how little we knew about the funds management industry. I mean, something as important as a license was conveniently overlooked and i think uh that for us was a real reality check i think of course we were quite shocked by it we were put off by the fact that these licenses existed and the fact that the barriers to entry for these licenses were, were far too high for us as as a bunch of young you know 21 year olds to overcome you needed a certain amount of years in the financial industry which we certainly didn't have uh, and we hadn't managed pools of money of this sort of size required for an AFSL. So it, it puts a dampen on you, but then I think you take what's good from it. So you, we take the, the lessons from it, which is we've got to be more realistic with how we're approaching this. At the end of the day, just because we're a student VC fund, just because we've got a very noble intention, just because we might be founder friendly, doesn't place us outside of the rules that everyone else is subject to. and it's a reality check that if you're doing something, you're not doing something with a student umbrella where you might get exemptions or excuses. You're on the same playing ground as everyone else. And if you don't play with that, 
then don't play. Mm-hmm. That was something we, I think, initially dampened sort of our approach, our spirits. We took a lot from that experience and thought, well, okay, if this doesn't work, how do we pivot our structure? How do we come up with a new structure where we might not need a license? And I think that kind of experience was super refreshing for us because it forced us out of our comfort zone because it forced us to think around the conventional structures and made us push the boundaries for what could or could not be done. So to get around the license, uh, initially, I mean, the license never makes sense for a fund size of $500,000. The license itself costs about $50,000 and to service that with the relevant lawyers yeah. takes that up to about $100,000. So that's a you know, 20th, uh, fifth of your fund uh, going to fees and that's a fee that you have to service every year. So the economics don't make sense. Um, and then when you think about your LPs, um, their interests, no one wants to have a 15 or 20K investment on their balance sheet that might stay there for five to seven years. Perhaps these investors who are investing into textbook are more curious to support student founders and look at this as an altruistic play. So when you realize what their interests are, strangely, things become a lot more aligned than you think. The fund is just a position to get something done. You're mm-hmm. investing in founders to hopefully grow their business um, as an opportunity to grow them personally, and then for the business to start generating revenues. Mm-hmm. At this early stage, particularly in a student environment, our mission, going back to what I was referring to earlier, was always about empowering student founders. So for some founders, they don't need money because there are a lot of free resources out there that allow a lot of lean testing. So the lean startup has been a very interesting playbook that a lot of founders have followed. You know, you're often living at home, your overheads are covered. So the actual expenses of your business might not be that high. So a lot of these companies won't even need money. They might need, you know, $5,000 grant to do some, to get some basic uh, Amazon web services, some hosting, the occasional uh, investment, the occasional conference, uh, or just, you know, office expenses. But beyond that, they don't need that much more. When you think, when you align what the investors are looking for and what the funds are looking for, what, you know, all the stakeholders, uh, in your ecosystem are looking for it's all about you know, empowering student founders and supporting them and for the investors for our mentors for everyone that was supporting us it was about you know, giving back and the story there was wouldn't you have liked a student vc fund when you guys was you know back in school to mm-hmm. have that vehicle to, to support them and so then that became a lot more personal and we were able to receive a lot of funding in a in, in almost like a grant uh, expectation. That, so there were no expectations of return. And that gets around the financial services law mm-hmm. because you're not expecting a return on your investment. Therefore, we're not managing a pool of money. We're simply distributing that money to student invest, to student, uh, student companies and, and founders to get their projects across the line. So that was our essentially vehicle to get around that. And okay. then people were, people were serious about investing larger sums of money into these projects. Then they would simply do that out of their own funds or their own investment vehicles. And we would just be the pipeline to make that happen. 
at the end of the day, I think the, the ventures term is quite misleading in that, you know, you're an investment manager, you're you know, writing checks for returns. For me, I'm not interested in writing checks and taking super small positions in companies that might take seven to 10 years to reach a liquidity event or exit as uh, as might be termed in this industry mm-hmm. because that's simply too long uh, and it's probably cost me more to, 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 to maintain my balance sheet uh, than to just give that money away for free. So, and that's how investors would think as well. So when we align those two interests, you realize that you can still achieve the same mission because uh, whatever, I think, despite what we were doing, we need to stay true to sort of our, our core mission and our core mission was supporting student founders and it didn't matter the shape or form the shape of form is a position, uh, which can vary depending on the context and physical environment. And that physical environment was quite license heavy. So mm-hmm. we just play in that environment. <laughs> okay. Very, very interesting. So just to pick up on one point there, so you actually did not expect, or you did not have any return expectations with your um, investments, if you even can call it investment in, in that context. We, we really couldn't. Uh, I think, the expected value of these projects, whilst I think it would, it would have been amazing uh, if we could get a return of pre-seed investment, more likely than not, it's going to go bottoms up. Yeah. The metrics for a startup succeeding is already quite low. And you add on the fact that these are younger, younger founders doing this concurrently alongside their schooling or whatever other activities they might be engaged in amplifies that risk and the likelihood just decreases quite significantly. So if we look at it from an expected value perspective, it's quite low. But if you look at it from a de-risking perspective, that becomes a bit more exciting because even if the first check might be a grant or a, or, or a loan of sorts, then the next round when, when they get there, these founders will come to you first before anyone else. And that's when we talk about uh, access points and making sure you have a better vantage point than other investors that you're able to get in earlier mm-hmm. if these people recognize you as someone that supported them when no one else touched them. Yeah. And that's the unique selling point of the student VC is that eventually we might have a vehicle that actually has a fund, but this fund would invest in companies that have been through our programs that would follow on uh, from the initial batch mm-hmm. once we know that this is sufficiently de-risked and realistically realistically this looks like an investment and not a handout yeah fully agree and i think it's a nice example for how you can overcome some of these adversities by being creative and just finding a solution that might not be obvious at first but uh yeah very nice story there i think also to your other point i also heard a lot of times that i mean as an entrepreneur i think you never forget who your first investor was so um if you get in at the seed or even yeah, pre-seed stage i think that's a great way to position yourself then also going forward in uh following up rounds and then to to build that relationship with with the founders and to really help them. yeah and i think and the most recent analogy is the one with uh with dime and now virgil uh, textbook ventures didn't invest into dime we didn't put a single dollar behind them, but personally, I put a lot of time behind the founder. We worked together. We spent a lot of late nights working on the product, working on the business plans and, and the models in which we would, would generate revenue. Mm-hmm. But even though that experience didn't make me any money, it was 
an incredible opportunity for me to get in as their second investor when he did decide to raise. So at the end of the day, I always think that venture is never about betting on companies. Companies come and go, they fall. There are cycles to these businesses. We look at things like Kodak that have, you know, come and gone uh, quite, you know, gloriously. Um, but the people, I think, are the ones that are the long-term bet. Because just because Dime didn't work out didn't mean that Virgil didn't work out. So when Virgil came back and when we, I personally became a second investor in that, that was probably my best angel investment to date. And it was only possible because we knew the, we knew the founders. And he was one of the guys we supported earlier on. So he came to us when he was looking to raise. We were the first people. I was the first person he came to because it was someone that he had worked with, he had trusted, and someone who, you know, even though he wasn't even that exciting back in the days, um, remembered the early supporters and mentors that were part of the business. And yeah. I think, yeah, that's totally to your point. Um, people will never, will, people will, will forget you know, what things happened or how things transpired, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's crucial to this, uh, that's crucial to the venture capital uh, game is, if you make someone feel like they're special in the most adverse of scenarios, they'll remember that. And I think that's really the key to, to, to winning this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fully agree. Fully agree. And I think we already kind of entered now the, the next question I wanted to ask you, which is around your investment criteria. When you look at companies now, um, what are your success criteria when you look at the startup and, and the founder? I think that varies quite extensively depending on the types of businesses that we uh, look to invest in. Um, specifically for 256, um, if it's a project that has a deep technical background behind it, so for example, if you're looking at developing a layer two solution, so layer two refers to a scaling solution on the blockchain, so we can make it faster because currently the uh, uh, transactions per second on something like Ethereum is 16 and something on Visa is, is in the thousands. Yeah. If that's the case, then uh, we would require some sort of technical expertise in the field because realistically it's pretty hard to build something like this. So without the right academic pieces, uh, you're quite often not going to either struggle or be outpaced by competitors. So that's probably one piece that is more relevant for technology focused companies for other companies that focus more on distribution, so if we're trying to issue a stable asset, we're trying to build, or if you're trying to build a payments platform, what drives the payments platform is volume and distribution, and less so the technology. So we want to see founders that can execute, have a past record of executing businesses successfully, uh, whether it be in the same or a different industry, some sort of indicators that they know how to, they know how to do things and get stuff done. That's probably crucial. But I think the most important thing of all of this is um, what I like to refer to as a bit of crazy. And why I've come to this realization is there are so many businesses, uh, so many companies and business models that are easily copied. If we look at a lot of the services, such as telecommunications, you have three or four players that, you know, form this oligopoly at the top. And more often than not, it, the services they offer are quite similar. 
the concepts are quite similar. The products might also be quite similar. They're awesome. They might work, might work with the same providers or the same middlemen. So at that point, what what puts or what stands one company out from the next? And I think that has everything to do with the leadership behind it. If the leadership sees something that the other people don't see, then that is an unfair advantage. And I think that's what's been able to drive Virgil's success is that we were able to see something, or the founder at least, was not afraid to, to bet against the, the rest of the world, really. An 18-year-old set up a hedge fund is, is quite unheard of <laughs> to, to get his product across. Yeah. And it's that kind of resilience and, and relentlessness that I think really separates a great company from a good company. So that's what I look. That's what I largely look for in my in my investment criteria. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. And looking overall, like, what was your best investment, if you can say? It does not even need to be like a financial investment. It can also be an investment in time or energy. Um, anything. I think personally, it's definitely been my investment to Virgil. I think uh, from a metrics perspective, it's done. Uh, spectacularly well but from a learning perspective it's opened my uh, my eyes to a completely different world that I never expected to be in I never at any point expected to be a hedge fund manager working with teams of you know teams of traders Um, and I think that was a a wonderful experience to learn about this space uh, on a one on a great vantage point so I think that was super rewarding in terms of uh, companies Companies, I think, that have the highest impact. So in Australia, one of the textbook ventures companies that we had invested in, a VR project, uh, was really trying to push the boundaries on healthcare. So people that had lost sensation in their limbs, they were trying to use VR as a technology to, uh, to essentially revive those senses in the brain. I thought that was absolutely spectacular in their mission to try and do greater good through 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 their product so those are probably the two uh investments that i'm probably the most proud and and, and excited about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very cool yeah i think it's great if you invest in companies that have a larger purpose and um, they're trying to achieve something that advances um humanity or also has some social good as well it's not just a, <laughs> a, a monetary goal behind it but also you really want to make the world a better place so uh, that sounds great I think since we are getting towards the end, I want to switch gears a little bit and have just a few more personal questions towards the end. So one question I like to ask is what weird or unusual hobbies or routines do you have? If at any at all. (laughs) No, I I definitely have uh, unusual hobbies. I think the most unusual of them is, um, I don't even know how unusual it is actually is, is I used to be a professional competitive fencer at once upon a time. Oh, interesting. I got into it quite accidentally in, in high school. Um, I'm an innately competitive person. And I think fencing is one of those sports which has been, has been a likened to vertical chess, is that you know you, you have to make split-second decisions um, on, on, on the piece. So that's on the, on the, on the, on the strip that you fence on. And it's really taught me a lot about mental resilience and how to really push through uh, mental barriers when things look like they're falling apart. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, obviously, the physical part of it and just, you know, um, 
using that as a great outlet of exercise. Um, it's really taught me, I think, to, to take on my body a lot more and also realizing that, you know, if you have a split second to decide on things, if you make the wrong decision, um, you need to know how to bounce back and pick yourself up again because the world doesn't reward people that fall over and stay down. It rewards those that you know, might get knocked over but stand back up. So that was my most unusual hobby that <laughs> I probably had. Good, yeah. Um, I unfortunately don't know anyone else <laughs> who does it, but uh, very cool. Um, maybe another question. Do you have any favorite books that you like to read? Or um, if you're not reading much, any other, you know, go-to uh, resources where you get knowledge from? Uh, definitely. So I think I enjoy reading quite a bit. I try and go for a book a week. So the most recent uh, thing that I'm going through right now is uh, Finite and Infinite Games. And it describes the world in a set of, uh, essentially, it, as a series of games, both finite and infinite. So finite games have a clear winner. Um, you know, you play until one side loses or wins. And infinite games are games that you play for a, for, for, for a larger purpose. I think it, it summarizes how we as people engage in day-to-day -day activities in history uh, quite, quite, quite clearly. So I think that those are, that's one recent read that I've been quite interested in getting through. Unfortunately, a bit slower than, than, uh, than wanted given all, all the movements, but I think it, it does a very good reflection on how we perceive things, how uh, winners are known down history, so the Jeffersons, and how a lot of people who, who didn't win get conveniently cleansed from, from, from the slates. Then another question that I find very interesting that I stumbled upon lately is this concept of uh, having a personal board, um, like advisory board. So if you as a person could choose some people, like they can be alive, they could be dead, they could be from any different areas that would advise you, how would your personal advisory board look like? I think... At a humanitarian level, someone like Nelson Mandela is um, a wonderful person who I think gets humility to its core and has also gone through, seen and experienced it all uh, from, from his, his experiences. I think as humans and as people, we often are quite, we can often become quite myopic in our scope of the world. We might only live in a certain area Uh, we might only be exposed to a certain breed of people, but realistically, the world's a lot bigger than I think very few people have had that experience and advantage of uh, vantage point of seeing it all or seeing more of it than others. So that's someone from a personal level. Um, other people would be someone like Elon Musk, mm -hmm. someone that is not afraid to challenge the world someone that's not afraid to really push the boundaries on what is humanly possible. And I think that's refreshing because by not pushing boundaries, you're essentially stagnating and stagnating is equivalent to just moving backwards. And that doesn't do anyone any good. I think we need a lot more people who are willing to, to take risks and, and break the initial existing rules because without that, you're never going to really improve. Um, and I think 
as a race that's so crucial for us to, to continually push boundaries of what is you know, technologically possible so you know we can better those in future generations and and really move forward as a civilization i think if we are content and if we are you know happy cruising along at uh, the current rate then you're going to miss a lot of things that are happening um in the world so those are probably two people that um, I, I would love to have on a personal board of directors mm-hmm. good answer so i think this already brings me to my last question which would be looking back what advice would you give to your younger self or a student who is about to graduate failing is ne- is never a bad thing making mistakes is not a bad thing unless you make the same mistake twice well spoken <laughs> thank you very much for your time david and i think to to wrap off would you like to mention like and where people could find you if they're interested to learn more about you or also 256 ventures I am trying to become more active on Twitter, so you can find me at my Twitter handle, David J. Liu, or uh, similarly on LinkedIn at the, the corresponding address. Great. Yeah. Thank you very much again, David. It was great to have you. I think it was a very interesting conversation, and I think uh, people get a lot of value out of it. Thanks a lot. It was great to be here. All right, everyone. As always, thank you very much for listening. I would really appreciate if you just take five seconds and quickly head over to the iTunes store or your favorite podcasting app and give the Leap Takers podcast a five-star rating. This really helps me to get more visibility out there. It's a competitive world. And this will also help me to get continuously great guests on this podcast. Please also don't shy away of sending me any questions, feedback or requests that you have regarding the podcast. I'm very happy to hear if you have any guest ideas, if you want to submit new questions or anything else that you would like to tell me. So just uh, drop me a message. You can find all the information on leaptakers.com as well as all the information where you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram or LinkedIn. Thank you for listening. And to end this episode of David's words, don't worry about making mistakes as long as you don't make the same mistake.